0: All right, I'm going to let those of you who are coming in, come in. We are turning to page 61. And just as a bit of a rehash, we've uh, launched into a discussion of the sacraments. What is a sacrament? Okay, well done. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So there is both the sign right? And what? The thing signified, okay? We're going to say a lot more about that as, as we get into this discussion, but you got to remember that there's the sign and the thing signified. Now, we live in this very modern world where signs are not the thing signified, um, or they are less than the thing signified, or they're not even in the same category as the, as the thing signified. Um, for ancient Christians, however... Uh, They live in a world in which signs participate in the thing they signify. Now, you know this as much as you might reject it in how you might talk about things, all right? You're driving on the highway, it's late at night, uh, and you look, and you're in the middle of nowhere, and you look, and there's the low gas light on your dashboard, and you, what do you think? Oh no, I've gotta go get gas. And you keep driving and driving, and you know what happens when you get really nervous, right? And you're thinking, oh, no, am I going to run out of gas at 2 o'clock in the morning or whatever it is? And you look up, and there in the sky is this bright image of a shell. Now, what do you think? Do you think, oh, thank God, a sign of a shell. A big sign in the sky, I'm saved. (laughs) No, what do you think? You think, gas, yes! No, why did you think gas? Because of a shell. Because signs participate in the thing signified. Okay, And we know this, right? We know this, that it's not just a shell up in the sky, is it? It it points to something much more than that. Um, And when we speak about sacraments, we're speaking about uh, outward signs participating in the things signified. Um, and that is exactly what we as Anglicans teach. So when we were talking about baptism last week, we're not just talking about water, are we? And We're talking about the thing signified, which is to be washed by the Holy Spirit, which is to have your sins forgiven, uh, which is to be made a member of Christ's church, which is to be made a child of God. All of that is shown forth. And it's not just, I think this is really important to say, it's not just to say, well, this person already is a child of God, so we're marking that out. Is to say that by this regenerative sign, um, uh, the, the thing signified is given. So um, often uh, Anglicans speak of the sacraments as effectual signs, okay? as instrumental signs, okay? or, or we say that these things happen as instruments. Um, so this is all uh, very key because you know, today, uh, for many Christians, especially in North America and other places, uh, who have uh, lost this uh, sacramental heritage, um, which I think you know, is written into how the ancient church saw things, um, they're much more inclined to say, well, you know, this is, this is a mere symbol. Well, for ancient Christians, there's no such thing as a mere symbol, uh, because symbols always participate in the reality that they show forth. Um, and this is, this, is, this is a great, a very, a very big key. Let me just say a few words about baptism before we get started. Uh, looking at question 106, what is the inward and spiritual grace set forth in baptism? Well, the inward and spiritual grace set forth is a death to sin and a new birth to righteousness. Well, how do we know that? From the Bible, right? (laughs) This is kind of like one of those obvious Sunday school answers. How do we know that? The Bible tells me so. (laughs) Romans chapter 6, Paul is going on this extended discourse about, well, you know, if, if when we sin, God's grace increases, essentially, then why not just sin like crazy and let God give us his grace even in more abundance? And his answer is, that can't be. And the reason it can't be is that you have died with Christ and have been raised again Um, And he says, as many of you who are baptized into Christ were baptized also into his death. And if you are baptized with him into a death like his, you will certainly be raised with him in a resurrection like his. Um, How can we, he says, who died to sin, continue in it any longer? Um, So Paul's continual remembrance of even his own life is that he was baptized into this new life. Um, Okay. Today we're going to talk about the Eucharist. And I want to begin, uh, because I think it's, it's, it's quite important um, to do so, by just giving you a bit of a, um, a smattering of quotations uh, from the church fathers on this. Um, let's begin with, uh, oh, how about Ignatius of Antioch? This is in the, in the second century. Um, he says, they, the, the Gnostics, abstained from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. Um Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, that uh, French saint in the second century, uh, says, When, therefore, the mixed cup and the baked bread receives the word of God and becomes the Eucharist, the body of Christ, and from there the substance of our flesh is increased and supported, how can they say that the flesh is not capable of receiving the gift of God, which is eternal life? Flesh, which is nourished by the body and blood of Christ, receiving the word of God, becomes the Eucharist, which is the body of And blood of Christ. Um, Let me go forward just a little bit. Let's get some... Oh, Athanasius. Here's Athanasius speaking on this. He says, You shall see the Levites bringing loaves and a cup of wine and placing them on the table. So long as the prayers of supplication and entreaties have not been made, there is only bread and wine. But after the great and wonderful prayers have been completed, then the bread has become the body, and the wine the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, But after the prayers and holy supplications have been set forth, the word comes down into the bread and wine, and thus is his body confected. Um, Cyril of Jerusalem says, For just as the bread and the wine of the Eucharist before the holy invocation of the adorable Trinity were simple bread and wine, but the invocation having been made, the bread becomes the body of Christ, and the wine the blood of Christ. Okay. Now that's just a smattering of quotations. You can get the same effect in Augustine and um, a number of others. The point, I think, that, that I want to make in, in, in spades today is that if you, if you wonder what the Eucharist is, it's actually quite simple. The body and blood of Christ. Um, as Anglicans, we, however, will continually and often decline to say, how? We will decline to say, what metaphysical realities accompany this? Um, and uh, though Anglicans are quite um, strident in their rejection of uh, transubstantiation as it was understood in the 16th century, um, we are quite ready to say, um, as, as always, that what is received in the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. Um, and so I just want to make that abundantly clear before we get going. Um, but let's, let's, let's start with this first uh, question, question 110. If you need a catechism, I have a bunch on the welcome table. Why did Christ institute the sacrament of Holy Communion? He instituted it for the continued remembrance of the sacrifice of his atoning death and to convey the benefits the faithful receive through that sacrifice. Okay, Um, a few things just to get started. He instituted it for the continued remembrance of the sacrifice of his atoning death. Well, this this word remembrance uh, in our modern usage is a bit, uh, oh, Tone down, I'll say that. Uh, Remembrance, what do you think of when you think of remembrance? Oh, I remember I have class today, so I can't have lunch with you. It's just a sort of like cerebral remembrance. Um, We think about remembrance in very modern terms. Uh, In the New Testament, however, remembrance is a much more dynamic thing. Uh, To remember something, and in fact this is the Greek word anamnesis, which means to know again. Uh, and knowledge not of the brainy sort, but what? To know you, right? Um, if I say, uh, I know Nicholas, what do you take that to mean? That I know his biography? Which I don't really terribly well, by the way. That I know his birthday? Which I don't. <laughs> that I know facts about Nicholas? Nicholas? No, I know him personally. We've spent time together. Um, We've eaten breakfast together. We've had coffee, right? We we know each other. And when I speak of that knowing, I'm not talking about that I know facts about him. I know him personally. So this continued remembrance of Christ in the Eucharist is to know him, right? Um, And not in the sort of like, you know, cerebral manner this continued remembrance, not not just of him personally, but of the sacrifice of his atoning death and to convey the benefits the faithful receive through that sacrifice. So we all know, we know this, you know, as Christians you know this, that uh, if uh, if Jesus Christ has died and shed blood for us, right, what do we get from that? Forgiveness of sins, adoption as sons and daughters, uh, all these kinds of things. But, the church teaches that through the Eucharist, we actually receive the benefits of that sacrifice. Um, and somebody might say, well, that seems awfully strange, but let's let's keep going. So, remember, in a sacrament, what are there? There's two parts, right? The outward and visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. Question 111. What is the outward and visible sign in Holy Communion? The visible sign is bread and wine, which Christ commands us to receive. Okay? Now, this doesn't say here sort of like rice crackers and, uh, and grape juice, okay? Uh, it says bread and wine, all right? Um, and and uh, just to completely clarify, you know, <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, there are two kinds of wine in the New Testament, all right? There's new wine, okay, which is, which is alcoholic, okay? Um, that's when you just leave uh, the, the pressings of grapes out, it ferments in a matter of days. Okay, as any winemaker can tell you. Um, the only way you can get grape juice is if you squeeze it out of the grapes and drink it immediately. All right? um, but new wine is alcoholic. There's also wine that has been uh, kept in skins or in jars for a long period of time, a longer period of time, which is aged. That is also alcoholic. Okay? There is no understanding. Uh, because, actually, By the way, grape juice requires pasteurization and refrigeration to ever happen. So, in the New Testament, it's very clear that this is wine. Um, note something interesting about bread and wine. How are bread and wine made? Of course, you know, we don't use leavened bread, but I, th- I, th- I think, you know, there's, there's a pretty clear sense that Jesus was using some kind of leavened bread uh, in the New Testament. Uh, both of them require uh, an invisible action, right? Microorganisms, yeah? Yeast. We're the same thing. When you, when you go to the store and for those of you who are too young to do this, you know, there will come a day. When you go to the store, you buy a bottle of wine, that is a living thing that you are buying. It's alive. Um, when you buy a loaf of bread, uh, it's alive. That's why when you leave it out, what happens to it? It molds.. Okay? Um, if you've ever watched sourdough starters bubble and bubble and bubble, you know this, right? Um, ancient people had no knowledge of microbiology. However, they did believe that these two things shared in a mystical uh, and, and indeed mysterious action in creation. Um, so there's, there's a bit about the, the visible sign. Um, note also that um, bread, oh my goodness, in so many cultures of the ancient world, bread, uh, you know, for instance, in Egyptian, uh, the words bread and life are the same word. Um, Because there's this understanding that without bread, what happens to me? I will die. Because bread is the most basic sustenance I can have. Um, Wine. We don't don't think like this, but wine is vital to one's health. Um, Because can you drink water straight out of whatever you might find it in? You can drink living water, right? Usually. But... Do not drink out of a puddle, okay? You're going to get sick and you'll die. Wine is is a gift of of great life. Um, So these two are used um, to to be a reminder of that. What is the inward and spiritual thing signified? The spiritual thing signified is the body and blood of Christ, which are truly taken and received in the Lord's Supper by faith. Okay. The spiritual thing signified is the body and blood, and blood of Christ, which are taken and received in the Lord's Supper by faith. All right. So what is really received in the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, um, truly taken and received. Now, we receive by faith. What does that mean? Okay, this is really important. It means that as opposed to kind of eating Jesus with our teeth and our tongues and our stomachs, the mode of our reception is by faith. Um, meaning that uh, we, we partake in a spiritual manner. Now, does spiritual mean non-bodily? Again, we, could go, we keep going back to this. No, what does it mean? It means can't see it, right? What is faith? Yeah, believing in that which we can't see. Right? So can we, can we see the body and blood of Christ? No, we can, see, we can see the outer invisible sign. But the thing which we receive is the body and blood of Christ. What benefits do you receive through partaking of this sacrament? As my body is nourished by the bread and wine, I receive the strengthening and refreshing of my soul by the body and blood of Christ. And I receive the strengthening and refreshing of the love and unity which I share with fellow Christians with whom I am united in the one body of Christ. Okay, so my body is nourished, right, by what? Bread and wine, okay. And my soul is is strengthened and refreshed by the body and blood of Christ, okay. I receive that strengthening and refreshing of the love and unity which I share with fellow Christians, um, with whom I am united in one body of Christ. Now, this is really important. Um. Paul speaks of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as fellowship with the body and blood of Christ. And he uses this uh, Greek word koinonia, to be as one with. Right? So the, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia or, the fellow, or a fellowship with the blood of Christ? And the, and the bread which we break, is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ? What he's saying is that we become one with... The body and blood of Christ, become one with His body. Um, And by so doing, now how are we also the body of Christ? Because keep in mind, there. uh, This is one of the great uh, contributions of the last centuries of last century theology. There, there are three bodies of Christ, right? All united as one. What are they? You got the church, right? You got the body of Christ in the Eucharist, and you have His body. (laughs) As physical body. All are described in the same uh, as, as the being, uh, the body of Christ, yes? Are they all the same reality? They're united one to the other. I think that's really important. Um, so we are joined together as one body as we, as we, as we uh, are united to this one body of Christ. Um, now, I want to say just a bit. I want to take a bit of a br- break here. This is, uh, this is very difficult because, um, again, we're modern people, okay? So when, when you look at this book, what is this? It's a book, right? It's a catechism, even. Why? Because I look at it, and it's got pages. And books have pages. And I can read it. Because I, it's a book, Right, because to us as modern people a book is a book is a book is a book and a thing is a thing is a thing um, in the ancient world um, the, probably the best way to put it is that um, there, are, uh, there are different ways of looking at things metaphysically Yes. so if you look at Plato remember Plato's allegory of the cave and the, the people are chained to the wall and they look on the wall and they see the, they see shadows and that's all they see and yet they think well that's real that's what it is but really, it's what is it? It's the projection of these forms onto the wall. Um, so Plato's position is, well, what you see in reality is not the, it's not the thing. It's a projection of the form. So it's not the, it's not the thing itself. The thing itself is something you can't see. Now, Aristotle comes along. What's the difference there? Aristotle says, well, there's both the thing you can see and then there's the thing you can't see. There's accidents and substances. What's, what's the reality of the thing? The thing, Right? Right? So, if you look at this at this book, we would say uh, this book has bookness, does it not? And bookness is something that you can't see, but you know it's there. You know about bookness, right? It's how you distinguish a book from not a book. Okay. Um, and and so for the ancient world, the metaphysic, um, it's much easier to swallow this understanding of well, okay, so the Eucharist, right? you got bread and wine. Jesus says it's his body and blood now? Cool. Do you see how easy it is? You just say, of course. There's not this hang-up of saying, well, but it doesn't conform to what it looks like and what it tastes like and what it feels like. Okay. So there's, this, there's, this, um, there's, there's a metaphysic which is set up which accepts sacramental realities much more easily. Yes? Um, I think this is, this is essential for us to see because uh, we sort of look at it and we say, but it's bread and wine. It tastes like bread. It tastes like wine. It's bread and wine. Um, and yet you have this uh, Jesus saying, it's my body and blood. Okay. Um, so I want to I warn against uh, thinking of it uh, as, as just like an indifferent thing because uh, the truth of it is that Christians have always proclaimed this. And one of the reasons they proclaim it, and I think this is really important, is that they saw the universe in, in sacramental terms. Right? This isn't just uh, an instance of an exception in the way things are. This is actually the way things are. There's, there are. There are both the invisible realities and the things that I see and touch and taste and feel, right? And they are not separate, but rather joined in the same universe. So this is, this is very important. I, I think um, it's something that we, we really do need to be reawakened to because, listen, as Christians, we don't simply believe that the only things that exist are material things. Do we? No. Otherwise, you know, we would simply say, "Well, we we can't believe in God." Then, um, and indeed, there are even some uh, people who are ostensibly Christians saying, "Well, they're essentially materialists." Um, I, I think it's I think it's incompatible, to say the least. <laughs> we believe in the God who created both things visible and invisible, seen and unseen. Go ahead. Uh, yes, by faith. Yeah. Um, and that would be the caveat that I'd put on it, would be that um, as Anglicans we hold very, very firmly that the the way in which we receive is not with our stomachs, right? That's not how we receive the body and blood of Christ. We receive by faith. Um, and that's a really important distinction between, for instance, what what, what could ostensibly be taught, I, I say this carefully, um, in, a, in an understanding of transubstantiation, right? Because, But even in transubstantiation, remember what, what that means is that the substance, which is, in the Aristotelian thinking, is what a thing is, is the substance, is swapped out. Bread for body, wine for blood. Um, and though uh, some people were saying in the 16th century, you know, you're, you're, you're literally, you know, chewing Christ with your teeth. Um, the reformers bucked this understanding because they they knew that um, that there there must be um, that the sacraments must be received by faith. So go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll say that. Yeah, that is the eating. Um, that that the that the faith is how we eat, or is the mode of eating, right? Um, you know. <laughs> Well, this is borne out. This is born out in something Augustine says. Let me let me turn you to that. If I could just pull it up here rather quickly. As it turns out, I don't have it. Um, it's essentially to say that in um, in in the, in the sacraments. Think, let's just turn it to baptism for a moment. How do I receive all the blessings of the gifts of regeneration and new life and forgiveness of sins and all those things? Yeah, by grace, okay, that's for sure. I receive them by faith, don't I? I trust God to give them to me. And so, in a sense, baptism can't be abstracted from faith, right? I said that last week. Um, and, of course, you say, well, how can, a, how can a little baby have faith? Oh, babies have faith in all kinds of things. That's the first answer. <laughs> but the second answer is, yeah, we do trust that that baby will have faith. Yes, just like we do. Um, so it's important, that we, it's important that we say that, that, um, that, that uh, we can't see. Can we see the body and blood of Christ? Yes, we can. By faith. Yeah, by faith, right? faith, faith is like, uh, as, as a friend of mine used to put it, um, faith is like having a, a super special uh, eyewear that can help you see what you couldn't see otherwise. Okay. It helps you see what is, what is unseeable uh, by, by our natural eyes. Okay. What is required of you when you come to receive Holy Communion? I am to examine myself as to whether I truly repent of my sins and intend to lead the new life in Christ, whether I have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ, and remember his atoning death with a thankful heart, and whether I have shown love and forgiveness to all people. This is really important. Um, Paul is insistent that you must examine yourself before coming to receive. Um, Why do you have, part of it is, listen, he says really clearly the reason that some of you are dying. That some of you are getting sick is that you are coming to receive the Eucharist without discerning the body of Christ, okay, um, and and that you're coming uh, in with, with a state of sin. All right. Now, first of all, what I want to say about that is, if it's nothing, then why do you die if you eat it? Okay. So there's there's a great biblical question. If it's just nothing, then then who cares, right? Why would you get sick? But Paul says people are getting sick, um, and so what he intends is uh, that that you repent of sin, that you intend to lead a new life in Christ, that you have a living faith in God's mercy, that you remember his atoning death with a thankful heart. Now, I have to say this, that um, when, when the Eucharist is celebrated, um, there, is, there, is a, there is a very real sense, and we spoke of this earlier, in which um, there is this continual remembrance of his sacrifice and atoning death. Yes? So, then in fact, what happens on that altar is not dissimilar from what happened on the cross. In fact, every action that's done with the hands is done almost like a passion play in a sense. Because what is being shown forth is his passion. Um, in fact, there's a moment there, there, there you know, remember when the, when the host is broken? Yeah? Uh, the body is broken. Um, uh, there's a moment in which um, a little piece of that host is dropped into the chalice. And, and what happens when, uh, when blood is joined to flesh again? What do we call that? A living body, right? So um, when, when Jesus in his, in his, in his, in his corpse, you know, this is what happens in the resurrection, is it not? Blood starts pumping through his body again. What do we call that? The resurrection. So there's a resurrection. In the Eucharist. Um, and we come to the Eucharist. In, we come uh, um, with a living faith in that. Um, that's very important to see. Um, I should say as well. Uh, this, is, this is a rather important thing. In the Old Testament. Uh, were there sacrifices that you would not eat? Absolutely. They're called holocaust offerings. They're burnt up completely to a crisp. Uh, to ashes on the altar. This is, however, not the majority of sacrifices in the Old Testament. The majority of sacrifices in the Old Testament are uh, partaken of by those who make the offering. So the idea is you sacrifice the offering on the altar, and what do you do with it afterwards? You eat it, okay? You sacrifice the lamb, you take it home, you have a barbecue, okay? You you sacrifice the uh, some of the wine, you sacrifice wine, you take it home, you drink it. Right? Now, some is poured out, but not all of it. Um, Now, what does this build? Spoken of in Hebrews, actually. You actually become a partner in the altar and a partner in the sacrifice. Um, So, Jesus in his offering on the cross is both priest and victim, yes? He's both the one who offers the sacrifice and the sacrifice being offered. Now, does he mean for that just to sort of be something we look at and say, how interesting is that? Well, that would be an unheard of way to sacrifice in the Old Testament. Okay? Um, so the, the church very early caught on to this. That like, oh, well, he makes this sacrifice, yes. How do we receive the benefits of that sacrifice? We eat and drink. Um, and of course, this is what he says, isn't it? I think, you know, John chapter 6, unless you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life. So all this is to say that, that, um, that there's this understanding of oneness with Christ through the Eucharist. Um, and, and that being the case, uh, we do need to come, and this is really important. I mean, think about, think about all the places in the Old Testament where it's considered, if you're showing up at the altar, right, um, Jesus even speaks to this. If you show up at the altar and you remember that, that your, that your uh, brother has something against you, what do you do? You leave a gift at the altar, you go make peace with your brother, and then you come back and you offer it. Um, so it's very important to come to the Eucharist in, in fellowship with one another in a, in a state of repentance. And, of course, that's what we talk about just about every Sunday. What is, what is expected of you when you have shared in Holy Communion? Having been renewed in my union with Christ and his people through sharing in the supper, I should continue to live in holiness, avoiding sin, showing love and forgiveness to all, and serving others in gratitude. So what we are is we are renewed in this union with Christ um, through this sharing in the supper. I'm going to say a bit a bit more about that in a bit, but the call of the Eucharist is to continue to live in holiness, right? um, avoiding sins, showing love and forgiveness to all, and serving others in gratitude. Um, I'm going to even take it a step further and say, how do you live in holiness? you get up in the morning and say, I'm going to try harder today? Does that work? Have you even really tried that? First of all, okay, I'm just going to let you in on a secret. It doesn't work, right? It just doesn't work. Because there is no way for you to apply yourself enough to become holy. However, how do you become holy? A gift, yes. It's a gift. Um... And so we seek in the sacraments, and I think it's really important, we seek, especially in the Eucharist, grace. Grace. Um, Grace is the essence in the Eucharist. Um, And we need that, don't we? Remember how I was early talking about driving down the road and you see the gas empty symbol, right? And rather than just sort of, it looks like a a fuel pump, right? that's, that's another example of a symbol, right? You don't think, oh, there's a fuel pump on my... There's like, a, there's like a gas pump on my dashboard. Interesting, you know? You think, oh, no, I'm out of gas. <laughs> um, but it is to say, uh, if you drive your car on empty, you're going to run out of gas and you won't go anywhere. If you run your spiritual life on empty, you're going to run out of gas and you won't go anywhere. Um, we need to continually be asking God for his grace. And the Eucharist is, a, is the means of this, Yes. Um, I want to say just a few more things that aren't said in the catechism as well. Um, you'll remember that on the day of his resurrection, Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus with two disciples. Do you remember this scene? And he starts to unfold to them the scriptures. In fact, uh, some commentators have said this is about as, as, as close an insight into the early church's liturgy as we can possibly get. He shares the scriptures with them. Then he unfolds. He, he shows them himself in the, in, the, in the scriptures. And then what does he do? He breaks bread with them, yes? And we, we read that he is revealed to them in the breaking of bread. What does that mean? Well, in that instance, it means that when he breaks bread, they see who he is, and they know who he is. Um, it's also, get this, an insight into the way that ancient Christians saw this. They knew that in the breaking of bread, they were being joined to the risen Christ. Um, and that is that is throughout Scripture, Uh Quite evident, um, and of course, the ancient church held held this up. Um, read the Acts of the Apostles every single time this phrase "breaking of bread" occurs. Right? Remember Acts two forty two: they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking bread and the prayers. This, this is at the heart of the church's practice. Um, and so, if anybody asks me, look, why do you celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday? You know, in the church I grew up in, we maybe did that three, four times a year, and you do it every Sunday here. Well, why is it every Sunday? Well, first of all, it's, it's part of that received liturgy, right? I mean, for, for centuries upon centuries, this has not been considered to be an optional portion of the church's liturgy, which you don't have to do. Um, it's been considered to be a normal part of that Sunday after Sunday worship. And in fact, um, this is quite interesting. There was a time in Anglicanism where uh, the celebration of the Eucharist became, hit all-time lows, uh, where it just didn't happen uh, regularly. And really in the late 1800s uh, that practice began to be revived. And it was not because uh, people said, well, you know, we really like this uh, form of worship and we think it's going to catch on. It was out of an awareness of uh, the church fathers. It was out of an awareness of the scriptures, an awareness of how, um, how the ancient church worshiped, um, and all that came into account. And there was a revival of, of sacramental piety in Anglicanism um, of which we are inheritors. Um, so there's that. Um, any questions before we move on? Go ahead. Why don't we use leavened bread? Why don't we use leavened bread? That's a great question. Um, for For quite a while in the West, um, leavened bread has not been used, um, and there are several reasons for that. Um, one of them is that um, there. There is an understanding, uh, and in fact, we see this in some of the fathers that, in, in even a in even a, in even a crumb of the Eucharist, um, I think it's is it Ignatius who says this. And even a crumb of the Eucharist, there is there is the power to redeem thousands. Right? Um, in the West, there's this understanding that um, even in a crumb, Christ is present. Um, and of course, if you've ever if you've ever seen the Eucharist celebrated with with crumbly bread, it kind of makes a mess it's very hard to clean up, and so it's, it's very difficult. Um, the host, I mean, as a priest, I much prefer it uh, because it's just so much easier to do. It's so much easier. Uh, so a lot of it is just for it's, it's a very pragmatic reason. Um, it's, easier to, it's easier to keep them. It's easier to, um, to hang on to. It's easier to receive. Um, you know, there's just a lot of reasons there. Of course, in the Eastern Church, you know this, they receive leaven bread um, every Sunday. But it, it becomes, um, it's, it's an interesting thing because they actually uh, join the entire uh, center of this, they cut out the center of a big loaf of bread and they put that into the chalice and then they spoon out pieces of wine-soaked bread. And so you receive from a spoon like a baby, right? And that's, that's actually the symbolism that's maintained there. Um, so I think there's there are really two separate traditions which which uh, which are presented, and Anglicanism has tended to use hosts. Although there's been um, throughout things there's been the sense of like the, the just normal bread is used, um, but that's again for practical reasons it's almost it's almost impossible to maintain. Um, I've I've been at parishes where it happens. It's very difficult. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about, about to say conclusively. Um, there, there is some, and if you get into the rather heady New Testament discussions about this, there's some discussion of whether or not uh, the meal that he celebrated with his disciples was a Passover meal or not. Um, that's actually an open question for debate. I, I come down on it that it probably wasn't, actually. Um, but there, if not, it would have been perfectly conceivable that he would have used leavened bread. If it was, however, it would have been unleavened bread. So there's this kind of problem there. Uh, we just don't know. Um, but there is, that's one of the vast debates east and west is leavened bread or unleavened bread um, anyway I have to say I don't know, go ahead mm-hmm. yep yeah, I know <laughs> <laughs> um listen this is part of this is part of the deal where uh where the usage in liturgical practice uh develops over time and it becomes um how should I put this yeah, certain things just become de rigueur i mean they just they just happen you know and um and do you lose some of that inherent symbolism well, I don't think so at the end of the day um because you know, despite despite people kind of deriding what we use on Sundays as kind of like Styrofoam, it is real bread. I mean, I've seen this produced. It's bread. Um, it's just much easier to keep uh, to keep from having disasters. I'll put it that way. Um, and and that's just a it's just a and, and largely it is personal preference because to be to be perfectly clear, if if I thought, hey, let's use let's use uh, pita bread, we could use pita bread, right? Um, and it wouldn't be wouldn't be an issue. Um, but because A I don't want to drive the Ultra Guild nuts and, and B I don't want to go nuts. Uh you know, keeping keeping track of you know crumbs all over the place and all the obvious issues that also will happen. Um we just we use this. Um but uh that's that's how it is. <laughs> I'll just say that. Go ahead. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll say this in the third and fourth centuries, you don't get a lot of Christians worried about maintaining their Jewish roots. That's a sad deal, right? It's unfortunate that that was the way, but that was the way. Um, so so there's not this that concern is not evident there. Yeah, and I I would agree with that, <laughs> and I'm fine with that, right? I'm fine with I'm fine with that with that assumption. Go ahead. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, this is, this is a great question. So here's, here's how we do this. So the, the question has to do with, as there's deviations from the received outward and visible sign, yes? And in other words, like, you know, uh, listen, is, is, is uh, cranberry walnut bread bread? Yes, should we use it for the Eucharist? Probably not, okay? Um, and other forms of, like, you know, w- w- can grape juice suffice? Well, you know, here's how we answer that question as Anglicans this is really simple. There are just canons written that say you use alcoholic wine, okay, and bread, okay? It's just that simple, okay? Um, and, uh, and the answer there is, is just simply to say, and everybody does this, I mean, there are actually, in the Roman Catholic Church, there are canons too that, that, that say what you can use and what you can't use. Um, they actually specify the alcohol content, right? The minimum alcohol content is, pros- is prescribed. Um, so that's, that's all to say that, um, that the outward sign has to be maintained, uh, otherwise, you sort of lo- you lose hold of that, right? Um, and, and of course, I need to say as well, as Anglicans, sacraments are not sort of like, well, it, they may be outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace. They are actually assurances that you do, in fact, receive that grace. Um, so uh, it becomes harder and harder to assure people as you deviate from the sign, yes? As you deviate from the outward form uh, to assure people that that's the case. And I'll just say that, that openly. Go ahead, Anasita. Yeah. Milk, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's muddy water, it's still, water it's still water. Still water, right. Water. Yeah. And so, I just remember my You've got to love I Thomas Aquinas, heard, Aquinas for that. <laughs> I remember that I was uh, talking about like, oil and crustacean. Um, right. Yeah, well, and and also like here's here's part of the other thing. I mean, listen, vast trade networks being what they are, you could always get oil in England. I mean, this is not a problem. Um, no more than it's a problem today, right? You can you can get wine. Listen, this is another great. This is another reason that the that those outward signs are used, right? I have I have been all over the world, and even in Islamic countries, you can occasionally get wine, right? Um, you know, there are churches in Iran have access to wine, right? Um, there are exceptions made, in fact, right? Even in in Islamist countries, there are exceptions made to the rule. Um, and I would even say there there are all kinds of accounts. This is this is this is probably going a bit far afield, but there there are all kinds of accounts of Christian prisoners being held in prison. And what do we find them doing? They say, "Well, can we?" They kind of like uh, ha- they deal in, uh, in sort of these kind of prison um, economies where they track down grape juice and they you know sort of ferment it in, in hidden places um, why i mean this happened this actually happened in Nazi in the, in the concentration camps there are these all these accounts of like maximilian Kolbe getting his hands on wine so that he can celebrate the Eucharist in the camps the, i mean the ss wasn't giving it to him right so so this is this is an ongoing uh, thing, and I just say it because it's uh it's it's an important thing um, okay anybody anybody else go ahead is on the yep about the oh yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, and that's not that's not something we want to go. You don't want to go down that road, right? And I think I think especially and I should say this as Anglicans, you know, we don't we don't prescribe leavened or unleavened bread, for instance, um, because again, you don't want to go down that road. Um, so there it is. Um, now people people have often asked me like, well, you know, why can't we have a, a chalice full of non-alcoholic wine? Because Canonically, I'm prohibited from doing that, okay? Just quite simply. Um, uh, why can't we have gluten-free wafers? By the way, there are actually gluten-free wafers that are made with just the tiniest bit of gluten because there's this, there's this wonder of like, well, can it be real bread without gluten? Um, so, so there's all of this, which I don't think, again, I want to get away from this idea that we're just being incredibly scrupulous. That's not the point. The point is that Uh, that the outward sign is preserved um, so that we don't get far afield from the inward and spiritual grace. Does that make sense? Okay. Go ahead. Yep. Sure. Well... So she's, she's recalling John chapter 6, you know, he who, um, uh, what is it? Um, okay. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, who believes in me shall never thirst. Um, well, yeah, obviously we get hungry again, right? Um, and, and you'd even say we get spiritually hungry again, yes? Um, of course, here's, here's part of the thing. Um, and I'll, I'll answer it in two ways. One will be absolutely, we'll be hungry for the Lord's grace again. Absolutely. Um, But we're not going to sort of stew in hunger, are we? Because we have access to the sacrament, right? Another way of answering it, too, is that um, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll give my personal experience on this. I have known tons and tons and tons of friends through the years who just speak of this immense hunger for Christ. It's just deep, and, and, and wondrous, and, and incredible. Um, I've never felt that. That's not a deficiency in my spiritual life, it's just that I've always felt like, well, I mean, I receive the Eucharist every Sunday, so it's hard for me to feel hungry when I feel like I'm receiving so much. Um, and that's just, that's just a personal anecdote, and I don't want to take it much further. But I do see where you're going with that. It's, if, if that's the case, then why are we still hungry? Um, and I think part of the answer would be this. What do you think we're going to do in heaven, folks? Sit around in spiritual hunger forever? No. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, look at look at this. Uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas speaks of this. That if you remember the the hymn "Humbly I Adore Thee," you know, he speaks of of this kind of like, I I, I can't see with my eyes, right? He says it much more poetically and beautifully, and it's much better in Latin than in English. Uh, but but it's I can't see with my eyes, and taste and touch and and vision to discern thee fail. Right? W- what pierces through the veil in in Thomas's words? Faith, right? And at the very end of the hymn, he has this this uh, he speaks of the glorious vision, right? And so uh, I I want this is actually a great place to close, Emily. Thank you. <laughs> um, the Eucharist absolutely has an eschatological content to it, okay? Um, the ancient church understood this. We understand this today. Uh, we are participating in the eternal worship of heaven in a way that is uh, that is not in full, uh, uh, but is full at the same time, um, but anticipates that worship which we will enjoy forever, in which there will be no hunger and no thirst. Um so this is this is a key understanding. You know, for instance, churches are usually built facing east. I don't think this one is. But churches are normally built facing east. Why are they built facing east? Because yeah, you stand facing the rising of the sun. And one of the best effects in an English church is that you get this sun coming through the glass in the east, yes? And you get these beautiful lit up stained glass windows on Sunday mornings, which is kind of happening here. Uh, but but it is to be reminded that uh, the church stands in expectation of that coming of Christ. Okay? And, and, of course, some of the language used in the New Testament is um, Jesus saying, uh, you know, uh, in, in, this, in this way, uh, basically, you will remember me an, until my coming, right? And Paul, Paul refers to this as well in 1 Corinthians. Um, in this way, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? Um, so there is this, uh, there's a very clear understanding that we eat and drink of the Eucharist, in expectation of His coming, um, when we shall have no more thirst and no more hunger, because why? He will be all and in all, um, and fill all. Um, so, so there is this, uh, there is this expectation built into the Eucharistic. Okay. Next week, we're going to talk about other sacraments, uh, the other five, so to speak, um, and we'll begin with question one hundred sixteen. So that'll happen next week. Uh, thank you all.